Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I am genuinely delighted to have as my guest, the one, the only Scott McTaggart. He is a sales and startup consultant, although he hates the term consultant, a bon vivant, and generally a good old-fashioned grumpy old man who's got lots of scar tissue. Scott, welcome. Man, I, I feel seen. Isn't that what you're supposed to say now when somebody gives a good intro like that? I feel seen. <laughs> it's like uh, it's a, it's a naked Scott. It's so nice to be recognized and welcomed for what I actually am. Excellent. Okay, well, I think we're in for a bit of a treat. But before we get stuck into our mutual grumpiness, can you just give 60 seconds on your history, please? I got started with sales and startups back in college, actually. I dropped out of a marketing undergraduate program to start my first business at like 19 or 20. I can't even remember anymore because it's been 8,000 years. But And I've always had to sort of justify my existence with a little bit of brains and a little bit of hustle. And I've used that to grow businesses ever since. Well, you mean you've managed to be successful without a degree. How did you do that? Honestly, like a fair amount of fear about the fact that that might not be actually like anything other than a narrative that I wanted to buy into. (laughs) There is absolutely chicken and egg problem here. You know, you're just like, okay, well, am I successful because I'm afraid I won't be? is a legitimate point to be made here. And I just, like, I don't want to have all these kids at home going, yes, I told you it would be fine. Steve Jobs dropped out. You know, Bill Gates dropped out. You know, like, dude, that's a ball statement saying that you're one of those guys. I just... (laughs) Well, you didn't do too badly. If I recall correctly, you managed to peddle your last venture to um, uh, a very Uh, large consultancy. That wasn't my venture, so... (laughs) well you can take the credit (laughs) no no i take cash i don't take credit (laughs) excellent okay well let's get started big question very nebulous what's wrong with sales today (sighs) sales is existing in so many different time periods simultaneously We have people that still want things to be 1970. We have people that are living maybe a little bit too hip for the room. So when you and I were getting started, we were used to people hating the idea of a salesperson being at the same cocktail party with them. They didn't want you to approach them. You were a fast-talking bullshit artist who, you know, might like magically lure them under your mesmerizing spell. And then they've got life insurance, three cars, and, you know, some sort of retirement plan that they didn't. And then psychopaths, of course. But, well, why not, right? I mean, in for a penny, in for a pound. So the expected for, I think, a lot of us in that people are now okay with that to an extent because it feels more data-driven and it feels more sort of AI, high-speed, low-drag, fancy tools. So now you have all of these different people living together in the same plane of existence. You've got the old school folks in the 1970s era offices with the wood panel and maybe still some nicotine film on the wall who are saying things like, oh, people buy people. And what you have to do is go out and just knock more doors than the competition. But if you parachute into the competition, you might very well find a really sophisticated it's not a sales operation anymore. It is a go-to-market operation synthesized. I've heard the term RevOps. I feel like that's a little self-congratulatory for, for my taste, but whatever, especially because it seems like we're always trying to be fancier and techier. But you know, what's wrong with sales is right now, I don't think it's one job. I don't think it's one 
thing. I think there are people who are specialists in a older, which is not a pejorative, it's just an observation, an older way of doing things. And there are people who are just efficiency experts that rappel down the building every morning, you know, and come in and do 500 touches like it's nothing because, you know, they've invested in a tech stack that nobody else even knows exists. So how do you recruit for that? How do you, how do you add to your company, your team? How do you hire a sales manager? How do you hire a VP of sales or a chief revenue officer until you have some basic and fundamental, almost religious level cultural conversations of how do we do what we do and why do we do what we do? Which you've, you and I've talked a few times now, you know, that's like one of my questions is why are we doing what we're doing? Like, that's always one of the things I go to. So why is it so few people even bother to ask that question? I think they're terrified of the answer. So think about it, right? How many people do you know that wish they were entrepreneurs? This is something I have unique insight into because I work with so many startups. There are plenty of people who want to start a business. And they tell me, they're like, oh, well, I'm not like you. So what? I don't even know what that means. I have a fair understanding of what the challenges are. How did I get those? By doing it. I have a fair understanding of what I can deliver from doing it. I think when people say I'm not like you, I think what they mean is I don't want to start at the beginning. I want to start in the middle or I want to start an advanced mature level of, of being able to execute. So they will continue doing a thing that they don't want to do that does not advance their interests rather than risk being bad at something for a while. I don't know. That's a guess. Marcus, the, the, the real answer to your question of why don't people ask that question more is I have no idea. I don't think I'm uniquely wired. Maybe I have a more bottom line approach to the way I look at it in that the more time we spend navel gazing, the less time we're building companies and the less time we're actually making interesting things happen. So I don't know. I can't really answer it. I'll, the best I can proffer is a guess. My question then is, is what passes for great in sales today even remotely fit for purpose? No. That sounds like I'm dumping on people that I'm not dumping on. Again, let me take it out of sales for a moment because I have a feeling like, and I do this all the time, when, when you're too close to a thing, it's more difficult to understand the way the rest of the world looks at it. So let's, let's bump it just one neighborhood over into marketing. What is marketing is a question a lot of people, including business owners, CEOs, cannot answer. If you ask someone who's owned a family business for 20 years, 30 years, they'll t- probably tell you the marketing person does the website. Or the marketing person makes the flyers for the, you know, the retail shop that they own or whatever, right? The marketing person is distilled down then the pretty pictures person. There's no understanding of sort of the customer. There's no understanding of why we sell what we sell. And I think sales is going through that same thing. So when I bump it over to marketing, I'm, I'm really saying like marketing is not a job. There's a person who measures trends. There's a person who understands what the customer said when we first decided to release this product or offer this service. And we don't have that yet here in sales. We haven't admitted that there are different types of specialists. Anything that touches the customer in any way, shape, or form is marketing. And sales is just a subset of that. Um, disagree. Exceptionally unpopular view. So Absolutely disagree. Go ahead. Love you to pieces, but you're wrong. Explain why. 
Marketing is the business of researching the customer and what the market is doing broad scale. Sales is the hand-to-hand trench combat that acts on that research. They have to work together, but they are not the same. And if anything, I think the salesperson's job is to betray the marketer. And it is built that way. It is not a betrayal in the sense of like, now you must hang. It is a betrayal in the sense of, look, I know that you're a unique and, and, and wonderful snowflake who stands apart from the unwashed masses. I'm your sales rep. I understand this. I am your lawyer at the court of company opinion. And I'm here to fight for you, the unique corner case who deserves special treatment. Okay. I think marketers' jobs is to find out what 80% of people will do. I think salespeople recognize that customers never think they're in the 80%. That's an interesting perspective. Okay, let's pretend you're right. Well, I mean, it's been known to happen. I mean, let's not get that way. (laughs) What frustrates me is the lack of contact with the customer that marketing has. I've come across, I think, five, maybe six marketers in my entire working life who actually talk to the fucking customer. That's Um, weird. I have not had that same experience. My experience has usually been long intervals between, but not a complete lack of customer contact. I mean, our our experiences can be different. I mean, my my, my intervals have been about once every seven years. Nice. Uh, (laughs) I mean, that's a great gig if you can get it. It fascinates me that the customer seems to be this inconvenient, forgotten afterthought at the end of a long chain of abuse throughout the entire revenue operation from marketing to the lead gen, through sales, through customer success, through account. Yeah, we are 100% lockstep on this thought. And that to me is, it's a betrayal of the customer. We exist because of, not in spite of them. Our job is to help them achieve the jobs that they need to get done. And I think what seems to have happened is we've got lots and lots of people who've developed the better mousetrap, expecting people to beat a path to their door. We obsess about the stuff that makes us utterly selfish sellers and marketers. We talk about our company, our product, our investors. We show photographs of our head office. We use first-person pronouns. And the customer doesn't give a flying fuck about any of that. What they they care about is, can you help me solve my problem? Are you going to help me get the jobs I need to get done done? And I'm going to rent your solution as long as it delivers the outcome I need. And this is all driven by shitty leadership shitty investors, a bad, broken economic model, and a disconnect. So people think about the customer in terms of their ability to act as um, an organic ATM machine, as opposed to thinking as the customer, and how can we serve them? And that- We could could unpack that last passage there. We could unpack that over 10 shows and still not be done. Okay. Yeah. And, And that's why it's still that way. But I, I, I want to seize in on two things um, before we before they get away from us. Um, the first one is this is a job about data, and I don't mean that in the abstract IBM Watson sort of cold calculating predictive analytics, you know, sort of. A, I mean in the sense of there is a definite right and a definite wrong, and people don't like being challenged 
humility is hard one. And if there's one thing, you know, you, if there was a backup answer to your earlier question about what's wrong with sales, my backup answer might be, we're living in a period of shamelessness. We're living in a period of personal brand, which is poorly understood. And the most important thing for people is to protect this narrative that they've created. Mm -hmm. And that humility makes that personal brand a collaborative effort. Writing that story about myself is now you and me, right? That's a that takes a humility and a strength and a, and a vulnerability that a lot of people are reluctant to open the door to because they don't know if they're ever coming back if they do it, right? And that's one of the great things about people that have actually like been through the startup grind, that have actually been proper salespeople and managers and whatnot is you've had your head caved in by people and you have to build it into the narrative. It is a, it is a co-writing of your personal brand. It is a co-writing of your company story, co-writing of everything. And you've got to be pretty strong to do that. And, you know, what, what set me off on this rant is when you were talking about, you know, bad leadership. I am inundated with stories of people who tell me, well, my sales manager is always making fun of the customer or my coworkers are always talking about the customer behind, you know, like as soon as the call's over, they talk about how the customer is an idiot. And that is a, that betrays a very fragile ego that betrays that you're not really comfortable with the humility required for the position. The idea that you're going to tell the customer what they need is patently ridiculous. You can't be an expert on every business. You can't be an expert on every situation. And frankly, like, why would you want to be? I don't know. Does this make sense or am I just up my own ass? Yeah, I think that there's something really important here, which is as salespeople, we need to have the humility to and vulnerability to challenge and put ourselves in harm's way. I was interviewing someone else for another podcast on diversity, equity, and inclusion earlier. And we we're talking about recruitment. And what I see in that industry is a total lack of challenge. You see these recruitment consultants, and I use that term as pejoratively as I possibly can, simply becoming word search experts. <laughs> They take the cut and paste profile or job description, which bears no relation to the actual job, that helped the company hire the wrong person the last time, and then slap it on to recruit another one so that they can search for keywords and then hire somebody with the lagging indicators that do not predict future success in the role. And they don't challenge hiring managers. They don't consult at all. They just take orders. And they operate from a, a, wor a world of scarcity because they're desperate to get vacancies on that they can work on in the hope that maybe they get one in 12 of the jobs that they work on to uh, end up in a placement. And mm -hmm. it's a race to get the timestamp for them to put the, the, the CV that the company receives three or four times from different consultants on first. And I see this in the technology world. I see it in uh, manufacturing. I see it in recruitment. It's all over the shop because salespeople do not understand their role. I believe that a salesperson's job is to sit side by side with the customer and be their ally, not their adversary, which is where a lot of sales comes from, and not to be their accomplice. If I want to lose weight, 
having a fridge full of chocolate cake and a pantry full of chocolate and biscuits is not uh, going to help me on my uh, my path. And I see far, far too few salespeople having the, the courage and the gumption to say, you know, Scott, how do I tell you you're wrong without you getting upset? Right. Well, this is what I mean, though, right? Attacking someone's narrative is officially taboo. They have to I, opt into humility. I say bollocks to that. It's your um, responsibility as a salesperson to do it. You have to get permission and you have to do it nurturingly. But I think if you are not doing that, you are not doing your job. How often have you seen a customer come to you and say, we want this solution? And they bring you the wrong solution because the solution they bring you is inevitably the wrong solution. It's not I mean, only that's, the wrong that's the normal resting state, but mostly that comes from a lack of ability to trust the people that sit across the table. So they feel as though they've got to do their own research and they've got to come up with their own solution and run a bid process or an RFP process that is, that is designed to give them what they think they need. I think we agree on a lot of things, but I think one of the things that, that I will keep saying is most people don't realize that this job is about living in the real world. And I'm yeah. sorry, but it is not the customer, like it's not the customer's job to do that. The customer is likely to be, with all respect to all the various lovely people that have, you know, that have done business with me over the years. But if they choose not to 100% live in reality, then you as the rep, you as the marketer, you as the startup have to choose whether or not that's okay with you. And honestly, a lot of people have not gotten into our businesses or our roles because the real world's a rough place and, oh. and, and real feedback is hard on them. It is. But I think you need to, you, you can earn trust quickly. Potentially. Um, if you turn up with the right intent. This is one of my big bugbears because when most salespeople turn up, they're turning up to try and make the sale instead of establishing, can I help? Am I the right person to help? If, I'm, if I am, then I have an obligation to sell to you. If I can't or I'm not, then I have an obligation to refer you to somebody else. But because you've turned up with a weak, empty, inconsistent pipeline, you right. desperately need everything. You're being ragged on by your boss uh, to hit quota. You're worried about keeping your job. So you'll sell anything to anyone. But the, fact, the leadership is not getting enough of this spotlight. The leadership is trash right now. Like oh, it, is, it is trash. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to illuminate three ways rather than just seem like I'm trying to say <laughs> sensational things on a podcast, right? Number one way is... The qualification step is, mo is the most deserving thing of our attention. And it almost never gets leadership attention, right? Yeah. Leadership thinks salespeople know this, or at least leadership doesn't think. One of the two. When you go through a proper qualification step, you're giving yourself a get-out-of-jail-free card for the people that are a bad match. Yep. And yourself. If I sit down with you and, and let's stick with your example, you say, I want to lose some weight. And I say, okay, well, I've got carrots over here and I've got, uh, I don't know, an exercise program over there. And we sell both of these things. And you say, no, I want chocolate. I now have most of the information of how this is going to go. 
And I have a couple sort of last gasp sort of things I can say to you. Like, well, this doctor here says that that's probably not going to work. And he seems pretty thin. So let's listen to him. But the customer is 100% within their rights to make bad decisions. And I, I used to have this fantastic leader who told me, when they're wrong, tell them twice and then move on. <laughs> this was the rule. Um, we have come was, up with a trillion dollar business, though, the chocolate diet. The chocolate diet would be pretty sweet. I mean, let's, let's not let's not over gloss over the the you know strong capabilities in the innovation space. But he used to say, "Well, if they're wrong, tell them twice." This is not debate club, right? You know, you're 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 coming in. So I don't know, like what what mental model you grew up with. I I, I grew up with a lot of them because I did a lot of different jobs. So the 11-step sales process, the 13-step sales process, the whatever, right? Some of them branded, some of them literally just like, you know, photocopied back to the, you know, <laughs> World War II era. And one of the things that I sort of will fight till I die is the idea that you need a lot of steps to make sense of what we do, right? I, I live on what I jokingly refer to as the five and a half step sales process. <laughs> okay. Intro. Hi, I'm Scott. You know, I want you to buy my wares. If you get permission after the intro, you move to the qualification step, which is questions that determine whether or not the additional investment of time is worthwhile for both of us. Yep. So I understand you want to lose weight. Here are the wares that I offer that help you with that. Here are some customers. You tell me about you. And you tell me, uh, you know, I have $8 that I can spend on this. And I only want to do it on Thursdays. And I go, this is a bad fit. Okay. And I say, well, Marcus, it doesn't sound like we're going to be a good fit. Our solution doesn't match what you've listed as your you know, requirements. Uh, do you have any flexibility on your requirements? And I might even throw one of the old feel felt founds in there where I say, uh, we had another client, you know, Joe bag of donuts. And Joe said, the same things as you, but he listened to some of our other clients and he found out that our system works pretty well. Give us a shot. What do you say? Right. Qualify, qualify. Does this work? Are you flexible? What's your budget? How many days are you going to devote to it? You know, what do you really care about? What have you heard that's wrong? There's a million of these uh, available in my upcoming book on qualifying questions. Absolutely. But the, forward to that. But the um, that bit there gets boring. It does get boring because you think that like the job is monotonous. You make it monotonous. You think that the job is hard. You think that you're going to get yelled at. It does become hard. You do get yelled at. Yeah, but then, that's because you've created the conditions. It is 100% self-fulfilling. Absolutely. So you go from qualification to proposal, but you haven't 100%. That's our third step is a proposal step. You haven't 100% confirmed the qualifications. So you have this little half step confirmation. It's like, okay, Marcus, here's what I'm hearing. You only want to work on losing weight on Thursdays. You have eight bucks. You only want to eat chocolate and you are inflexible. <laughs> Saying that out loud makes it especially sort of informative. And now you have a decision to make. Like, is this really the hill you want to die on, right? Is this really where you want the decision to be made? You can hear it in my voice that I'm now coming to a conclusion based on the data I've collected. 
And you say one of two things, either, whoa, now that you say that out loud, actually, I kind of think, feel like I'm being a little bit unreasonable. I mean, obviously some of those things are negotiable, but not all of them or something reasonable, or you absolutely pound the table. And you're like chocolate in the pantry, chocolate in the pantry. And that's fine too. Uh, because you know what? I'm an equal opportunity kind of a guy, but I don't want to be the guy to sell you. I don't want to sell you. So with that little half step, that little, here's what I'm hearing. You're now vulnerable and putting yourself into the position of, can I propose? And again, trash leadership comes to the front. Yeah. Well, you're supposed to do a certain number of proposals every month, Marcus. You're supposed to have a certain number of these, right? So my dad used to call this uh, management by index, which was just sort of like, so basically, you know, he was, he was the guy who said like, look, just because the spreadsheet says that you're supposed to have a certain percentage of your funnel B in the proposal phase, or you're supposed to generate a certain number of proposals does not mean that the way that that manifests itself will be useful, healthy, organic. Well, it drives shitty behavior because people just fill the funnel with a pile of shit. So now you're proposing not because the qualification step gave you permission or the, or the confirmation at the end of it gave you permission to do it. You're doing it because you're looking at salesforce.com and you went, hey, wait a minute. I'm one proposal light for this month. I should force Marcus into taking a proposal for me. I know he's not going to buy on it, but at least it gets trash leader, Mr. Index, off my case next Monday when we all sit around and do our sales meeting. Well, so from there, you go to negotiation. They get the proposal. Your train's already off the track at this point. There's no way you're going you're gonna to close a proposal that you didn't get confirmation on. And that's the last step. So I grew up on intro, qualification. I added confirmation, proposal, proposal to negotiate close. You are not going to get a train to its destination if it derailed on the second leg. Okay. This then speaks of the knock-on symptoms because I, I, I see so many unintended consequences for what on the surface appears to be logical requirements for salespeople. I look at things like targets for daily dials, demos, proposals, and what the unintended consequences are is that your forecast is just a work of fiction. Your CRM is full of incorrect, inaccurate, incomplete, total horseshit data. And over 80% of most CRMs is just fiction and dross. Net result of that is that you're making decisions on the business on 80% incomplete or inaccurate data you then start to fall into the trap of doubling down on your effort. So uh, brute force is your principal tool. As simultaneously a way of fixing the numbers and also of whipping the horses so that they understand that this failure will not be permitted. Yeah, the beating will continue until morale improves. 100%. So you then end up creating this cycle of violence where you have burnout, People missing target, people being burnt out, uh, revolving door in sales. Which but here, wait, gets- wait, wait. Let me jump in there, though, because shockingly enough, we're back to trash leadership. Yeah. Here, we, here we are now with what is the accountability or consequence? Because here's the thing. You've got folks at the top who really did customer validation, market validation. They learned basically that what they're making has a market, that they can sell it. 
The problem happened at scale. The problem happened because the squishy middle of the company that doesn't talk to customers is not sufficiently accountable in this scenario that we're describing. So CEO at the top, 22-year-old that just came out of college at the bottom, the wrong number of dials, the wrong forecast, all of these different things, everything has basically gone flying everywhere except the direction it was supposed to go. The person in the middle that is supposed to be conducting this orchestra, the only sanction you can put against them is, well, I'll fire you. Yeah. And we all know how hard it is to replace that person. Today, yesterday, 10 years from now, finding a person that can lead a sales team has always been a challenge, especially, again, back to a comment that we made half an hour ago, which was cultural, religious factioning in what is considered to be one profession, but is not. So I, I'm not just looking for a sales manager. I'm looking for a sales manager that is our level of technical sophistication, our level of trustworthiness, our level of, you know, demo versus whatever you want to call it process. There's this reason, there's this kink in the hose that would bring us sales managers. And we know that the best we can hope for over on a six month period is maybe what, five, six qualified sales managers that might actually need a job, agree to the terms, be qualified in the industry, be worthy of the responsibility you gave them. I mean, the list goes on. So the sanctions aren't sufficient for the middle of the company. So you threaten them, you tell them that their performance is you know, insufficient, they don't get a bonus, whatever. But when it was a startup, that, that early stage that I, I spend probably half my time with, like it is absolutely an existential threat to get this wrong. What flabbergasts me is the evidence is clearly out there. You see companies that have developed a pretty reasonable product, they manage to scale, and then they go out and they get funding. And the investors have paid a lot for this business because they're betting on fast growth. Yep. And then in order to meet the revenue targets, you start hiring and spending like you've never done before. You rush the critical key hires. You overbuild the team. You ramp marketing spend. And yep. then you realize that the market fit, the product fit's not quite there. You're going through this learning curve in sales. Um, maybe you but- realize that. Maybe. Or maybe it looks like that because of the, like, again, I'm back to chicken and egg, right? Is it that the product market fit's not there? Or is that, or is it that you rushed through those hires and you have people who don't even understand your message and they're out there saying the wrong thing to people? Well, that, that then results in missing your uh, targets in terms of lifetime value, cost of customer acquisition, revenue growth, et cetera. But by then, it's too late to change course. And after several quarters of burning through cash, burning through people, missing targets, dropping expectations, you've wasted a shitload of money, and the investors are really angry. And then you go into this death spiral, and the head of sales gets replaced one, two, three times, CEO gets replaced a few times. Then um, if you're lucky, you might be able to raise some more cash to try and keep the dead man walking. But you see this pattern happening time and time and time and time again. And uh, what, I, what I, I'm, uh, as a species, I'm depressed because I don't think we learn from history and we're pretty fucking stupid. 
we stay attached to what made us successful you know 15 years ago no um, we stay attached to what we heard made us successful uh, yeah and what we think because the narratives of what how many times now have you seen the narrative of a thing that you lived through be completely different from what actually happened yeah. <laughs> and then and then you watch people lie to themselves about their own narrative. It just compounds the same problem. Well, I mean, this is my fifth recession. And in every recession, I've found that there is enormous opportunity. A recession is nothing more than a herd psychological disorder. So you've got lots of people who all of a sudden shift from positive to negative sentiment. You know, the world doesn't suddenly lose 30% of its aluminium reserves and its iron and coal and everything else. Just people's sentiment shifts. And um, I think there's uh, so much emphasis deviating slightly. I, I see an awful lot of sales leadership suffering from the shiny object syndrome. So you see these technology stacks being bought in MarTech and sales tech. Then they uh, say, oh, we've got this great new tool. It's going to uh, change everything. I bought a hammer. Now I'm a carpenter. Yeah, absolutely. So they they depend on the wrong things. You know, the fundamentals of selling haven't changed in two and a half thousand years. You know, you've got to find people who have a problem that they want to fix and you can fix, and then you sell them a solution. And you, you have to spend time in the qualification, which is why I'm really excited by your book, The Questions Buyers Need to Ask, uh, Need You to Ask, because I think that side of the sale has been forgotten in favor of shitty technique. I have a real bee in my bonnet about the cabal that is the sales training industry. Um, yeah. But there, there are three uh, misanthropic groups in this. There's the technical buyers in L&D, in HR. There are the user buyers in terms of sales leadership and salespeople. Marcus. And there are the trainers themselves. Marcus. Yeah. I love it when you talk to me and Miller Hyman. Am I? I have no I love idea. It. I love it when you talk to me and Miller Hyman. Wow. Please, please continue. I, I, I haven't read Miller Hyman in 30 years. Oh my God. That's, you know, you were doing so great there for a while. <laughs> well, I'm not going to make it. Chef's kiss on the fingers. <laughs> K fucking Lindo. You got to read Miller Hyman's strategic selling. I don't care I, which I, edition. I read it 30 years ago. We'll do it again. It's fantastic. Okay. It's well, lovely. But, like, I would go there on Sundays for services if they let me. <laughs> the, thing <that's, laughs> the thing that still flabbergasts me is the total lack of connection between those three important groups. Because sales trainers turn up and they do their entertainment bit for a day or two, and then they fuck off. Um, oh, yeah. L&D is focused on retention of knowledge. I don't give a fuck about retention as a CRO. I care. Does it move the needle? Do uh, I more money in the bank and customers who stay longer? Wait, 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 wait. There, there, so you're also dancing around something else, which is everything has gotten exponentially more complex as human history has proceeded. So you started off and you were a guy who lived in a hole in a wall and you had a dog maybe, right? There was fire, there was rain, and there were predators, and you lived to an average age of like 20. And that was, for that guy, in that moment, still super complicated because there was no way for him to know which animals were going to kill him. And he didn't really know what fire did and blah, 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 right? 
we were born before the internet. And what did they tell us? Oh, it's going to be the, what, what was it? The, it's, it's the sum total of human knowledge will be yeah. accessible, right? But what it actually did was create an entire new department of complexity. Now we've got entire industries based on it, whatever. And I think one of the, one of the choices you have to make is, do you need to master that complexity? Do you need to master the fundamentals? What order do you do that in? Which one is more important? And honestly, before you, you run, rush to judgment thinking, well, it's obviously the fundamentals. I can't agree with that because I think some people's jobs are the complexity. There is a person who woke up this morning to explain to you. I have a brilliant social media consultant friend. She is ridiculously smart when it comes to what the platforms reward and how to stretch your spend and those kinds of things. And as a result, she's made a lot of people a lot of money. But there's a complexity to what she does, which we could say, well, if you're just studying the fundamentals, really, she should just be focusing on selling in general or, or messaging in general or whatever. And I'm saying that there, there's a seat for everybody around the table. But knowing who you are is a really important part of that. Why are we doing what we're doing thing? If your gifts are in understanding that complexity, and you listen to you know us old farts telling you that the fundamentals are the most important thing, which we're going to strongly you know lean on because they've they've helped us so many times. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, you can build yourself a decent career on it, but it won't be in the minutia of the LinkedIn ads platform or whatever. You know, but that's not about selling. That's about operational execution. You're not wrong. Um, that is, I mean, that's an accurate thing. But if that's what you do all day long, you're going to. Again, we're back to like, you know, old truisms. When all you're holding is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail, right? Like, yeah. and I think take some an extra moment of saying like, is the complexity of that social media profile what I do or what I sell, right? And global worldwide marketplace of people colliding into each other all the time. We can't sit here and referee and say like, no, 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 you're trying to sell a thing that's still guided by our fundamentals right? People have a very hard time sorting out their place in the world right now because the complexity by definition is higher than it's ever been. And I think, again, this is a place where your leader should pull you aside and say, look, it's a jungle out there. Here's the things that we want you to accomplish. Here's some things that we think are indicative that you're moving in the right direction. But you can make a thousand worlds out of shit we don't know. So Take that with a grain of salt. I, let, me, let me bring this back to ground level because I feel like I'm getting esoteric. Why do beginners have luck? Because they are simple questions. And they're goal-oriented still. They're not trying to look fancy. They're not trying to impress everybody else. They show up for work in their nicest clothes with their hair done correctly. They've got a good night's sleep. They show up and they sit down at their new cubicle, which sucks, and they don't know that it even sucks. And their boss says, go sell our widget. And not knowing any of the, the finer details of it, they just find a way because they are goal-oriented and they are sticking to what really needs to happen. Beginner's luck isn't luck. Beginner's luck is simplicity of approach. Isn't that fundamentals? Agree. It is, but not in the way that we meant it because it's not taught at that point. At that point, you're just trying to find a way to survive in the pond. 
And then you end up getting sidetracked because all of the daz, the, the, the zing lights and, and flashing what's it's and the, you know, zoom infos and the sales navigators and the intent to purchase and the whatever starts crowding up what you didn't realize was a limited amount of attention and, and horsepower and fuel. So it's base. Yes, we are leaning on fundamentals because we are right. And it feels good to self-congratulate. <laughs> but but my argument is more about the fact that you can't expect people to see it so simply until they've lived or been led by someone that can be trusted. That then comes to the central issue, I believe, which is the paucity of good management, total underinvestment in management, the wrong people being put into management the lack of a management apprenticeship because your average manager gets tapped on the shoulder and told, Scott, we've just fired your idiot boss. You're now the idiot boss. Congratulations. Yep. Uh, you've become the idiot boss because you're a higher performer than average. And the skills required to be a manager are diametrically opposed to being a selfish individual contributor. Let's take that bleak outlook and make it worse. The way, that, <laughs> the way that you became a higher performer than others is very likely to be a function of your longevity, not your skill. And I'm not talking in these like high speed, you know, fancy secret squirrel companies. I mean, the ones that are like the smokestack industries, the ones that have been around, the, the companies that have, you know, decades of experience. The person who's the top sales rep in that firm likely became the top sales rep because they've been there the longest. And while everyone else was quitting or getting fired, they were absorbing that person's book. There is a lot of that. But again, that speaks to another really fundamental problem, which is the revolving door that exists in sales and the ludicrous approach towards recruitment. But um, again, hire but 10, hope three work out by the end of the year, and one might survive two. But um, stick with uh, the whole thing about how hard it was to find a suitable replacement manager. And that guy who just kind of hung around for a while starts to look pretty good. If we're being fair, they start to look pretty good because they understand the culture. They're not going to ask for stupid things that the boss doesn't believe in or smart things that the boss doesn't believe in, right? They are unchallenging to the status quo. And you know that you're going to get variations on a theme as opposed to a radical installation of a new process or, or methodology that the CEO, the president, the owner, the vice president does not feel is causing him extra work. But th this then speaks to one thing that I know really pisses you off. Which oh, is go. Waste of potential. Oh, of my God. Like nothing in this world. Uh, who report to the manager. And I see that all the time. Liz Wiseman's book, Multipliers, she talks about diminishes and multipliers. Diminishes, if they're lucky, squeeze 50% of productivity, uh, whereas multipliers get 200%. If you have a good manager, it makes all the difference. But th um, there is no apprenticeship to learn to be a manager. Your normal route to management is you wake up one morning, you get promoted, and you do what was done to you, you do what you think is best, um, right. or you beat the, uh, the table a lot and um, say, let me show you how a real man closes. And you become the super closer, uh, which means that you, become, you diminish your people. They don't grow, they don't develop, and you are doing the diametrically opposed activities that you're meant to be doing as a manager because your job is to hire the best people and get the best out of them. And very few managers do that. 
Well, I read something the other day that feels like it's germane here, and it was just a really quick little quip, and it said, uh, pessimists look smart and optimists make money. What's that mean? Uh, well, to me, in this, in this world, it's there are managers that are trying to tell you about their index, about their you know, precious spreadsheet, about these things that look like success. They're the pessimists because they don't believe that you will work when they're not looking. They don't believe that you will find a way if they don't micromanage you into it. And right. the optimists create an aspirational path for you that says like, look, Marcus, I know you're a smart guy and I really dig your energy. And I want you to take your whole self to this meeting with this potential client and tell them something as simple as why you think this is a good value for them and why you think it can help their business. And then you go do real work. You don't micromanage them. You don't sit there and be like, okay, well, if they say this, then you say that, right? And try to like war game and get inside people's heads and freak them out. Yes, absolutely. Practice your skills, practice your pitch. Stop saying um every three words. I've got an entire business based on this. But when I say pessimists, what I read when I read that as pessimists, I read micromanagers who believe that salespeople are livestock, that will never aspire higher than the sales manager's paltry ability to micromanage. They'll never be able to exceed what I will get out of them by squeezing them on the daily. And if you find yourself in that situation as you listen to this, and there's nothing else you take out of today's show, it's quit that job. Absolutely. You fire your manager in that case. And um, ma managers need to give trust. They need to encourage people to fail. They need to encourage people to take risk. If you punish people for taking risk, they will stop doing it. Uh, and then you become a bottleneck because you'll suffer from upward delegation. The entire English-speaking culture is now based on avoidance of risk. Hmm. Right now, the entire English-speaking corporate culture is based, on, uh, is based on avoidance of risk. They do not want, they don't think, and this is a human failing. This isn't just, you know, guys in neckties. As a psychology, we are more wired to think about what we are losing than what we could gain. So when Global Megacorp agrees to receive a proposal, that micromanager who is not fit for purpose sees that as money in their pocket. And if it doesn't happen, it's because you, the terrible sales rep, lost it for them. You're not allowed to try anything new. You're not allowed to be aspirational and give a great presentation and, you know, like unlock the potential of one plus one equaling three, right? You're not allowed to do that. It's there's too much to lose here. So what we're going to do is I'm going to give the presentation, even though I haven't given one since 1982. <laughs> and when it fails and it will, it'll be because you gave an uninspired, uninspiring, wrote funeral dirge of a conservative presentation. And then you're going to roll your eyes when that startup with the flip-flops, the t-shirt and the blazer rolls in and comes in and goes, dude, we can do some really cool stuff if you let us. And yeah, you're going to go back. And again, you're going to talk about how the customer is an idiot because slander is the last refuge of the scoundrel. <laughs> My pal, Amy Woodall, says the, uh, the customer 
is often wrong, but when they are, it's normally our fault. And I think one of the challenges here is we need to really start thinking about taking personal responsibility. And that's something that's sadly lacking. I think we need to self-reflect more often. We need to learn from others as well. And I think asking for help has become a a sign of weakness. And it's not. It's anything but. I'm so delighted I eventually learned in my 53rd year that the best question to ask is who. If I have a problem, the first question I ask is who has fixed this before? Why the fuck am I going to reinvent the wheel? So. At 44 years old, I think people in my age band and up have hard have a hard time asking for help. But I think people at some point close to my age and below are actually very comfortable with it. The majority of people who actually like ask me for help with practicing their pitches, like the, the people who actively seek it out, there's a lovely um, sub-community on Reddit for sales, which is absolutely people taking self responsibility for their career. They're aware of the fact that this is sort of broken, but uh, you know, you said this is my fifth reception recession and it made me think about it, right? Like think about the Z's and the, and the millennials, how many once in a lifetime crashes they've already lived through. You know, it's just like born in time for nine 11 lived through the 2008 financial crash, right? Tossed in another recession and a Brexit along the way. Like, sure. Why not? You know I mean? Like we're made of hard stuff. And what are they doing in, re- in response is they're, they're forming groups. They're asking, like, where are my blind spots? What do I not know? Because it's what you don't know that you don't know that bites you. Well, that I find incredibly encouraging. And uh, I'm delighted to hear that. I, I, I also see that. Um, and what, what I'm really excited by is the realization by so many that collaboration will be the key to success in the future. And um, we don't have time for it now because we've come to the top of the hour. But what I'm really excited by is the growth in strategic alliances, the growth in collaboration within uh, technology. You cannot afford to be a single cog in the machine because now you're just one of many that an enterprise needs to solve their problems. And I think uh, learning how to play nicely with others is something you absolutely have to get good at. So, so since we're at the top of the hour, let me, let me put a bow on that with, some, with an observation. What we're really talking about is two models to achieve success, one being replaced by the other. The first model was this index-driven, you have to have so many dials, you have to have so many demos, you have to have so many proposals. Uh-huh. One is collaborative and and everyone sort of crowdsourcing the answer. I have a very close friend who works in economic development, trying to bring people to entrepreneurship and innovation by bringing those things close to their home. And he, he always says that for a long time, everyone tried to recreate Silicon Valley. And what they did was they sent a bus full of people to Silicon Valley who took their notebooks and they would write down, uh, okay, well, they have palm trees and they have an ocean and they have, and then they get it back home. And then they build their version of Silicon Valley in their town, which didn't have palm trees and didn't have an ocean or whatever. So maybe they imported those things or faked those things or whatever. 
because what they were doing was mimicking as opposed to understanding and building. And the collaborative approach that is supplanting the micromanagement, management by index, you know, well, we, Family Feud, we, we asked 100 people how many calls you have to make. The collaborative thing is going to have more failures, but it will have more successes. Yeah. And one of the interesting things one of my startup friends is actually working on is this idea of crowdsourced bullshit detection is a factor of modern life. We just haven't actually realized it yet. And, And there will be an entire flotilla of businesses based around this idea of crowdsourced bullshit detection. I'm stealing his line, so I should give him a shout. His company's called moneystack.com. And, and he recognized that most people get these financial planners or, you know, whatever, these like bank services sales reps who kind of get them one-on-one and whisper bad advice to them. But when you get them to say the same thing to a room of 30 people, all of a sudden they're very conservative and helpful in their recommendations <laughs> because, <laughs> because crowdsourcing the bullshit detection puts everybody on their best behavior. And I think that's what we're tripping on right now is we don't necessarily have the right vocabulary or vernacular to talk about sort of what we're witnessing. But the old dinosaurs of management by index are fighting to stay alive. And the new methodology of collaboration and crowdsourced BS detection is, is taking its place. And I absolutely think that's a positive improvement. Excellent. Scott, thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I hope it will be the first of many. Uh, Tell us the name of your new book. The book is called The Questions Buyers Need You to Ask. It's it's not intended to be read cover to cover. It's more of a you know little reference that you take with you, you know, through your day and and try to mix up the the questions and and you know make your job a little bit more fun and help you get better results out of your client meetings. Excellent. How can people get hold of you? LinkedIn is usually the easiest way. Uh, find me on LinkedIn. It's uh, Scott McTaggart, S-C-O-T-M-A-C-T-A-G-G-A-R-T. Send me a note. You know, tell me what you liked and didn't like. I, uh, I'm open for all these discussions. I really enjoy this topic. Excellent. Scott McTaggart, thank you. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this and found it useful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe and tag somebody who could do with a listen, particularly an idiot manager. And if you feel the urge, leave a recommendation or a review of the podcast on Apple or Google. And if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com or DM me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.